If you're a regular Geeks Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. And I want to give a special thank you to Bloom Ulysses in Great Britain, who just gave us this five-star review. Great host, great guests, fascinating topics. There's so much in this podcast, every sci-fi fan will find something. There's discussions of the classic novels, reviews of modern works, and the interviews and panel discussions usually have interesting guests. David's got a good interview style and often asks insightful questions. Just a good podcast overall. So big thanks again to Bloom Ulysses for that great review. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 530 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me, Please, and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500. So definitely check that out if you missed it. And in this episode, we'll be discussing the classic 1992 novel of Fire Upon the Deep by Werner Vinge, the first book in his space opera series, The Zones of Thought. And this will include spoilers for everything in the book, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Tobias S. Bakel, making his 15th appearance on the show. He's the author of the Xenowealth series of space adventure novels, the eco-thrillers Arctic Rising and Hurricane Fever, and the Halo novels The Cold Protocol and Envoy. His latest book, Shogoths in Traffic and Other Stories, is out now from Fairwood Press. So, Toby, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Fifteen. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the next up, we've got Abby Goldsmith, making her sixth appearance on the show. She's a co-host of the Stories for Nerds podcast, and her short fiction has appeared in Escape Pod and Fantasy Magazine. Her Torth series of space opera novels are available now on Wattpad, where they've racked up over 65,000 reads. So, Abby, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. And also joining us today is Mercurio D. Rivera, making his third appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Asimov's, Analog, and the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, and in books such as The Best Science Fiction of the Year, Volumes 5 and 6. Fourteen of those stories are included in his collection Across the Event Horizon from Newcon Press, and his story Beyond the Tattered Veil of Stars recently appeared as a podcast from Dust Studios, featuring the voices of Jillian Jacobs from Community and Justin Kirk from Weeds. His first novel, Worgen, The Alien Love War, which was nominated for the Arthur C. Clarke Award, is out now. So, David, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Great to be back. Okay, so let's start off with Toby. And have you tell us about your history reading Werner Vinge? This book, I read it, I, you know, back down in the Caribbean, we have the, uh, I used to catch books um, from these little bookshelves that were left uh, stocked with books in like uh, harbors and random hotels and things like that. And they would say, take one, leave one on a little sign. And I remember one year at this dive shop, this scuba dive shop in uh, Crown Bay Marina in St. Thomas, I grabbed A Fire Upon the Deep, Bruce Sterling's Islands in the Net, and William Gibson's Neuromancer and read all three of those back to back during the next week. And my mind was sufficiently blown just, uh, you know, from, from reading Cyberpunk for the first time to reading this extra galactic 
computational, like computer science space adventure with these epic themes and epic set pieces was just a week that, you know, every, I'll never be able to have a week like that again, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Now, had you already read a ton of science fiction at that time or was this sort of early in your science fiction? I'd read a lot of science fiction, but like, you know, it was this kind of stochastic, you know, random encounters with different, you know, classics of the genre. I would just, whatever people left from their boat on these little take one, leave one libraries throughout the Caribbean were the books I would run into. Um, so I had read like golden age SF and I'd read, you know, Clark and Asimov, uh, you know, I'd read like some Samuel R. Delaney, but like, you know, I would read one of the, you know, Hugo award-winning books, you know, and then months would go by before I'd run into another one randomly. Um, so to have three, you know, really, uh, genre shaping books in a row like that kind of had this tremendous impact on me. And of them, uh, you know, this one was my favorite cause I love, you know, big starships and galactic scale sequences. Um, you know, the cyberpunk genre was more kind of like, uh, you know, geographically limited. Um, whereas like a fire upon the deep, you're just like, you're doing light years, you know, and, <laughs> uh, it's just the ideas and, and the thoughts and, uh, the scale. It, the thing that I keep coming back to is the scale of the book just kept blowing me away. That opening sequence where, you know, um, I had to read it twice to fully understand the fact that like when she goes to the library, she's the, the main character starts off as a librarian, which sounds like a very humble, small job, but she's a, archives branch manager and the and a branch is like uh you know a giant floating space platform orbital ring you know the archives are like an orbital ring platform like once you realize the scale of things suddenly like it felt like my brain got realigned and i was just sort of like oh this completely redefines librarian and yet she's a librarian on a on a galactic scale she's a galactic librarian it's just <laughs> like it just kept every time, every chapter, there was just another nugget of just mind blowing scale and perspective that would kind of reclick into this new perspective in my brain. And I just adored it. Yeah. Now, I've wanted to read this for a long time, actually, ever since we, we were at Clarion together, the Clarion Writers Workshop in 1999. Mm-hmm. And the way I remember it, anyways, you told me that this was your favorite book and that you had read it 25 times. 44 times. Even back then, it was 44 times. Yeah, I've only read it like, I think back then it would have been like 41, 42 times. I've read it a couple (laughs) more times since. But I was low-key obsessed with this book when I was in high school. Like, I mean, low-key obsessed. I uh, not only read it over and over again, because um, uh, um, I'm dyslexic and ADHD, so I tend to read really fast. You could almost call it skimming. But if I like a book, I'll just keep reading and reading and reading it over and over and over again until it kind of almost rasterizes into its final form in my head. Like back in the day when you had like a 56K modem that you had to dial in and an image would just download slowly, you know, but like all the detail would be missing. And then the next pass, there'd be more detail. And the next pass, there'd be more detail. That's kind of how I read books. Um, And so for this book, I was like, I like this book so much. I just want to download it into my skull. So I'm going to reread it obsessively um, every like month until I kind of feel like I've like wrapped my head around it. And um yeah, I mean, I, that's a bit crazy, but like I even paid my sister uh, 20 bucks to kind of like um, count how many pages were in each chapter. And I built a chart of like 
uh, what POV was in each chapter and what happened in each chapter. And I drew the, the, the scale that I scaled out the entire plot of the book onto like, uh, I think it was like 10 pieces of paper, you know, um, that I could like, uh, unfold and stretch out over an entire floor. So I could kind of see the shape of the book visually. And I used different color pens for different, different points of view. Um, the book really had a huge impact on my ability to kind of plot and think about the structure of novels. Cause I really dissected it over and over again. Cause I just couldn't, I just wanted to figure out how in the heck he did it. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was really interesting. And, yeah. um, I had the opportunity to, to actually tell him that once, uh, you know, uh, to tell Werner Vinge that like, yeah, I read your book 44 times. And he took like two steps back and <laughs> was looking for an exit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that that's a bit amazing. Yeah, I definitely want to hear more about what you've uh, sort of uh, figured out about the book after reading it so many times. But let's get uh, other people in here. I hope everyone here has yeah. read the book at least twenty five times. Otherwise, we're not <laughs> as gonna, minimum like, expectation, minimum need expectation to be on this panel. Uh, <laughs> no, I've only read it once, so uh, everyone will hopefully have read it at least as many times as I have. Um, <laughs> but so uh, let's get Abby in here. So Abby, what's your history with Werner Vinge? Well, wow, like not 44 <laughs> times. That's incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, like, so honestly, I was, I put off reading it for a long time, even though I knew it was like a must read golden age sci-fi book. Although honestly, it was published in the 1990s. So I don't know if you could really call that golden age. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was recommended a lot and I kept putting it off going, yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, and then I did finally pick it up recently, like within the last two years. And I was blown away. I thought it was just incredible. Um, much, much better than I was expecting. <laughs> so yeah, I ended up reading A Deepness in the Sky just recently. And I enjoyed that even more, honestly. I thought mm. it was just great. Okay, well, um, cool. No spoilers, because yeah. I haven't I haven't read that one. So But well I'll, I'll say <laughs> Deepness in the Sky is uh a sequel, uh to if anyone doesn't know, to this book. So well, it's a prequel, actually, but eh, same yeah. difference. Okay, it's yeah. in the same series as uh, as this book. So why do you think – I guess I had a little bit of the same thing. This was way better. I mean, I, I figured this would be good because Toby liked it so much. But I was I was just enthralled by this book. I thought it was so good. Um, and I guess like part of the reason it was not – or I, I thought it wasn't going to be as good as it is is because on the cover there's this, um, I don't know, like giant space – Manta, Manta Ray or something. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, this looks kind of like cheesy. I'd, or like, I don't know, or sort of like more. Like, I, th I thought it was going to be just more sort of ac action-y. Um, uh, yeah, I was expecting, um, I guess like a lot of Golden Age sci-fi tends to be very retro. Like the ideas were good for the time, but they don't really, like you have to kind of read them with an academic mindset because it they don't really fit with what we know about Mars and the moon and so forth these days. Um. But obviously, this was written much more recently, and it doesn't. There are, I mean, a little bit. There's a little bit of retro going yeah. on, but really not much. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. call this gold. I would call this more like news. I think there was, you know, the new space opera kind of like Ian M. Banks sort of um, helped revitalize the space opera genre in kind of what, like the eighty late eighties, I guess, or something. And then they were kind of like. Actually, you know, this this book has an introduction by John Good where he talks about that a little bit, where you had authors like Alistair Reynolds and Peter F. Hamilton, uh, Linton Nagata, I think he mentions, all kind of like helping to to bring space opera back to prominence. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but there is no giant space manta thing in the book, right? <laughs> and did I did I just miss that or like where did 
There, there were no space mantas. No. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No. I thought that was a ship. I don't think it's a it's a space manta. I think well, it's no, it's, it's really shaped. But it, yeah, it's like a manta shaped spaceship yeah. thing or something. Yeah. Right. And if you read the book, like the uh, the out of bound, which is the uh, starship that they spend most of the time in, is not described as like that. It's it's much more utilitarian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me let me get David in here too, though. So, David, what's your history with Werner uh, Vinci? Sure. Obviously, I'm not worthy. Um, <laughs> I have not read it that many times. This is my second read. I read it back when around the time it came out, maybe a year or two after. At the time, I was reading. Um, uh, I came to realize things that are that won the Hugo Award are good books to read. <laughs> I started to just read Hugo Award winning books, and this one had was one of the recent winners. So I sat down and read it and I was, I was blown away at the time. I was afraid to revisit it because I loved it so much and I was afraid it wouldn't hold up. Uh, I shouldn't have been. It really does for the most part uh, hold up. And, um, you know, what I, what I loved about it, it was, it was my introduction to real, you know, I, I guess I would call it classic space opera, you know, this grand scale storytelling, um, such ambitious and impressive uh, plotting, um, you know, the, 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 the personal drama and the emotions and, the deceptions all against this this vast cosmic backdrop, you know, this amazing this amazing setting. The whole I'm sure we'll get into the zones of thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a great what a great concept. Um, and and, um, uh, and on reread it, while it all held up, you know what stood out in my mind when I read the book back 25 years ago, and rereading it now is is the is the tines, the aliens on, on this world, the the, the pack minds that he creates for these aliens. I mean, it was, it, it blew me away at the time and it stayed with me all these years. That's what I was looking forward to when I read it now. And again, it was just, just amazing the way he pulls it off, pulls it off. And, you know, from a, um, just from a craft perspective, as somebody who writes aliens, you know, I, I went back and I kept rereading his, the way he introduced them and the way he introduces the concepts just a little bit at a time, you know, like a character will say, you know, I, uh, he held up his heads and you're like, mm-hmm. yes, hmm, okay. And like, and it, it kind of, it all comes together a little bit. It comes together eventually, but a little bit, you're confused. And I love how uh, eventually it all comes together and you, you, you understand what you're finally seeing. Um, but yeah, it was so impressive at the time and it remains impressive. Yeah. The, the edition I have, it's the, you know, Tor um, has this new line called Tor Essentials and they just released this, I don't know, I think within the past couple of years. Um, but the edition I have, it has a quote on the back from Joe Walton where she says something, something like this book has, you know, most, most authors would use, use the ideas in this book for over a 10 book series or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it has like 10 books worth of ideas packed into it. And I, I was just like, like every couple of pages, there was just some like amazing idea where I was like, oh yeah. And I was like underlining everything. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I wonder, David, how we were going to discuss it because there's just so much going on, <laughs> so much going on. I was like, just I started listing the characters, and I'm like, well, it's a lot of characters and the ideas. There's a lot of ideas. The plot is complicated, <laughs> so yeah. um, it's, it's just an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, we're only probably only going to be able to scratch the surface of all the ideas that are that are discussed in the book, and and yeah, and definitely like if you haven't read it, you know, again, seriously, spoiler warning, um, because this is <laughs> this is going to have spoilers in it. Um, but, um, so yeah, let's talk about the, so, so, so there's like basically this book I mean, there's two big, amazing ideas in this book, right? There's the zones of thought and there's the Tynes group minds aliens. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and the, the Tynes, 
I'll, let's do the zones of thought first, but I'll just say parenthetically, the Tynes, I think, are the best aliens I've ever read in science fiction. Um, certainly, I would say they're in the running. You well, know, I mean, to be. there's, but I mean, it's like it, it, there are a number of amazing aliens because the Scrode Riders, like to this day, like I, the Scrode Riders are also just a fantastic creation as well. They're very yeah. memorable. Okay, yeah. wait, but I'm going to do the zones of thought first. Okay, so okay, let's, okay, okay. Let's get get the aliens. Uh, we'll get to the aliens a little bit later. But Toby, since you've read this book 44 times, maybe you can explain the zones of thought. All right. So the Milky Way, right? Uh, if you just wonder, like, why haven't we been contacted by you know aliens, and and why is like faster than light travel like so hard? So Werner comes up with this idea that the Milky Way, the entire galaxy, is divided into these like what are called zones of thought, right? There are four of them. There are four zones, right? And there's the unthinking depths, and that's like the galactic center, right? And so the idea is like each of these zones, you can think at different speeds, different capacities, right? And we live in what's something called the slow zone. Earth, old Earth, is in the slow zone. That's where we're all kind of like compared to the galaxy, kind of stupid, right? And biological intelligence is possible in the slowness, but you can't build like artificial sentient intelligence and machinery and automation and like, um, you know, like artificial gravity and faster than light and faster than light communication. So like the reason why we can't access those things is because we're kind of like in the slow zone. And then below the slow zone in the galactic center are the unthinking depths. And like, if you try to, if you try to take a starship and you're going, you know, at sub light speeds and you end up in the unthinking depths, like you, you end up uh, incapable of even human intelligence. You can't even operate your machinery in any meaningful kind of uh, capacity. Um, and then above the slow zone, above us, above where earth, the old earth is, is something called the beyond, which is where like artificial intelligence and FTL and um, artificial gravity and all these really cool big space opera things exist um, and beyond the beyond is something called the transcend which is where you have like these like almost like godlike um, intelligent beings right that are artificial intelligence like a technological singularity um, uh, exist right and so most of this novel kind of initially takes place in the beyond this sort of space opera, this grand space opera area where they have access to these like really amazing technologies, which is where um, uh, the, uh, you know, a handful of human civilizations exist. They've kind of left the slow zone of where old earth is and have made their way into the beyond. And they're part of this greater galactic civilization, but kind of above them are these like godlike intelligences and technologies that occasionally dip down in um, and kind of meddle in regular affairs. And that's kind of just the initial setting of the first paragraph. <laughs> and the book is set up, right, with like this idea that there's some archaeologists that are um, like, you know, people in the beyond, different alien groups, right, um, go and find elements of technology that have dropped from the transcend into the beyond. And they try to, you know, like it's that classic SF trope of like, you know, um, the archaeological artifact that you find that's got all this like godlike powers in it. Right. So any civilization that goes and meddles with a transcend device, sometimes you can unlock a really cool piece of technology or sometimes you can end your entire civilization. And so the beginning of this is a bunch of humans are kind of screwing around with this artifact that they find and they unleash a virus that comes from the transcend. Right. And a virus that comes from the transcend is basically like unleashing a god. 
right? It's just like, it's like a civilizational ending event. And that's like what happens in the first handful of paragraphs is a bunch of archaeologists unlock a menace from the transcendence. And like, that that's the inciting incident of the yeah. whole novel. Yeah, I'll just add to that is that it's sort of set up that all these civilizations, because you have to get farther and farther from the galactic core to become more and more powerful, there's sort of this natural process by which civilizations are making their way farther and farther out into space. And right. so um, so there's this sort of this constant churn of, you know, as, as civilizations achieve more and more power and ability to travel and so on, they, you know, they take off for parts unknown. And mm-hmm. so, so yeah, so there's this constant churn of new civilizations emerging and departing and emerging and departing. Some coming um, up from the slow zone into the beyond, some from the beyond into the transcend, and occasionally some of them fall back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so, so Abby, when you, when you started this book and you hit this, this zones of thought idea, kind of what was your uh, initial uh, reaction to that? I mean, I, I thought it was pretty cool. Like it had so many interesting possibilities. Um, although, yeah, I would say the first time I read it, it was a little confusing. It took a long time for me to understand exactly what it meant. And I'm still a little bit confused about it. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess I, I have very few criticisms of this book. But I'll, I'll say I guess that's one is I felt like the first couple chapters were maybe like I, I could definitely I mean, I sort of knew a lot of this stuff already. So it wasn't as confusing to me, maybe. But but I was definitely thinking as I was reading it, like, wow, this this could be definitely be confusing to the first time. Uh, first time reader, yeah. They have they have, a, they have a, um, an illustration in the in the inside jacket of the book that kind of draws the zones, and then mm-hmm. um, and and they have one of the characters who is a um, he's a he's a resurrected being, uh, kind of a character almost out of a fantasy novel, who's who's given new life, and as a result of that, since he's new to the whole the whole you know the whole um, the whole backdrop, another character explains. The zones of thought to him, which I thought was a clever, a clever way to let the readers in on on the way it all is set up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, the, the the edition I have it has an introduction by John Clute, and he sort of explains the whole thing. And when I was uh, reading it, I was kind of like, "Dude, spoilers!" You know, this is giving <laughs> too much away. But then once I hit the first couple chapters, I was like, "Okay, I can kind of see why he did that." <laughs> you know, it's, it does kind of help having a little uh, explanation going in. Such a such a clever way to deal with faster than light travel too. Very you know so original and creative. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the other thing that I thought was so cool is the fact that like if you are a civilization that operates somewhere between the slow zone and the beyond, you have like the starships have like these um, old school ramjets uh, that sort of like slower than light travel. Um, engines in them so they they have like two engine systems there's the faster than light engine system and the slower than light one and like cold sleep equipment so you get like these old you know the old like slower than light you know cold sleep travel of science fiction mixed in with the faster than light woo 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 space opera at the same time and i was just sort of like oh man talk about just grabbing all the different tools to use in the same book because usually you have like one or the other but like well if we're going to hit the like slow zone we're going to need these ramjets and cold sleep pods so like the 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 whole thing drops in there and then there's all this math about like if you accidentally end up in a slow zone and how long it takes you to get back out it's just like whoa you know yeah no it's it's all super super cool so so abby so 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 going back to the first couple chapters so there's this the zones of thought and then let's also talk about a couple of the characters we're not gonna as david said we're not gonna try to 
do all of them, but so you're introduced to this these char- these sort of human characters. Um, uh, wait, I have the Ravna Berenstot and uh, fairly quickly Fam Nguyen. So, kind of, what was your uh, yeah. initial reaction to those characters? Um, I mean, kind of a little neutral at first. Um, they're right in saying you know Fam Nguyen is kind of like a swashbuckling hero from golden age sci-fi almost where he grew up in some medieval world that was set back the civilization collapse um so he grew up as like the minor son of a king um and then he was like introduced to a a trading cold sleep slow slow space travel civilization where he became one of the traders um and then he was like re (laughs) renewed into this like the beyond so yeah, it's, it's a lot of change for a character to undergo, and Ravna is immediately drawn to him. So it was a, a kind of cute, but a little bit tropey setup, I thought, mm-hmm. with these two characters. Yeah, and Ravna, I'll explain, is the librarian character that Toby mentioned earlier. Yeah, and, and so this yeah. this Fam Nguyen character, he was a a member of this trading organization called the Chang Ho. The, the Chang Ho. Chang Ho. Yeah, I actually read about the same character in the deepness in the sky, the, the prequel book. Um, Fam Nguyen is a major character in that book as well. And it goes really deep into his backstory there. Okay. I'll, I'll just say in the introduction or in the um, dedication, uh, Vinci writes, thanks to Paul Anderson for the quote that I use as the motto of the Cheng Ho. Uh, and if you read through the book, that motto is politics may come and go, but greed goes on forever. That's great. <laughs> Um, so, so David, do you have anything else or anything yeah, you want to I, add about the characters? Definitely. Um, for fa- her fam new and my favorite aspect of that character was that he seems like such a stock fantasy character. Um, you know, he's almost, he's lived a life as this galactic adventurer, um, uh, almost like a you know, space pirate prince, you know, it was like all these fantasy tropes that are part of his background. But what I love about it, at least in this novel, I have, been, um, I don't remember Deepness in the Sky, which I read back way back when, is the idea that his history is so, um, is such, is such a trope that you come to suspect that it's all been implanted, that it's not real, that these were all fake memories that were, um, given to him when he was resurrected. And I love that he's tormented by that and that, Ravna also comes to real. She almost comes to pity him whenever he talks about his grand adventures. So, so you know, Vinci kind of subverts the whole idea by by introducing that concept that lasts for the entirety of the uh, pretty much the entirety of the novel. So, I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ravna, I thought was um, she's sort of the. I thought she was the central point of view character for the novel. She's sort of the voice of reason. She starts off as the, the librarian at the relay hub. Um, who kind of read fantasy novels about characters like Fam uh, growing up. Uh, so it's funny that she encounters him. Uh, but um, but I thought she was sort of like the voice of reason. As a result of that, I thought she's she could be a little bit bland, but she was, in my view, kind of almost representing the point of view of the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, and then I'll also just add, we have sort of two other main human characters, Jeffrey and Joanna Allenstadt. And their parents are among the archaeologists who unleash this, you know, godlike virus that Toby mentioned. And so then they end up fleeing, possibly with a um, a countermeasure uh, for this virus, and they end up stranded on an alien planet. And 
Um, like I said, I have very few um, criticisms of this book, but since other people have mentioned it, I guess, one, I mean, one thing that did occur to me is I, I do feel like the, the human characters are maybe a little on the bland side. I mean, I think that there's so much amazing stuff going on that, that you know, it doesn't matter. And, um, you know, it, it maybe even would be distracting if, if the human characters were too colorful. It might just be too much. Um but since Toby, since you've read this 44 times, what do you think about the human characters? Do you think that they're uh, a little on the bland side or do I think, they have? Like, I think they feel bland. Stuff? Sorry, I'm talking over you, but I think they feel bland because there's so much really cool stuff going on. Right. Um, I mean, you could write a whole science fiction story about, you know, Ravna, you know, going to uh, the relay and, you know, having those experiences she does and, um, you know, like you said, every two pages, something huge is coming out of this book. So I, I don't know how you could have made Ravna any more, you know, colorful than, than she is. Right. Um, she just has so many interesting people to go up against that it's hard for her to not be a victim of the circumstances of how interesting the novel is making her seem a little bit more bland, but I don't, I don't think she's bland. I think she's the character that we kind of use as a way into the novel, you know, and that allows us to kind of see the wildness of what's going on around them. I think she's like a, a grounded, you know, um, point of view for us to experience these crazy stories that are whirling around her. Um, and it's very uh, reflective of the nature of, the human civilizations that are in this book, which is that they are small and out of their depth in many ways. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, so let's get into the aliens, which are definitely not bland in any way. So, um, so Abby, why don't you tell us about the Tyans? Oh, they're so, I mean, they're adorable, first of all, because they're basically wolf packs, <laughs> but they're connected. Their minds are connected. So there's kind of four to eight, wolf individuals which are called members um but they can like three of them cannot form a complete individual it has to be four or more i think isn't it three you need three to be human level intelligence no i think three they're kind of just below human level toby 44 times tell us is it three or three or four <laughs> it's um you need at least four uh at least to, four okay at least four I stand corrected. Okay. So sorry, it's, Abby. it's, uh, you need at least four. And if you go over eight, you become part of such a large group mind that like distinctiveness is erased. And they, uh, they remember the tropical times, uh, are all one large sort of, uh, circle cluster. Um, so like at three, you can survive and get around, but you're kind of like almost a subhuman mind, but more intelligent than an animal, but it's not considered effective. It's kind of like being wounded or disabled in their, in, in their conception of like, you know, um, thought. Okay, I stand corrected. Okay, so Abby, uh, continue. Yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, that that's what it is. It's so interesting. Um, so a lot of it's proximity based, and the novel definitely goes into that later when they start getting technologically more advanced thanks to the humans. But they start out like like, and they're in a medieval level kind of um, pre spacefaring civilization. They are not at the level of spaceflight or anything. They have not invented electricity. Um, but the novel kind of makes a point about the fact that they cannot go into close proximity to each other or they do start to lose their sense of self because 
if they send like three or four or whatever many members next to another one, they start overlapping thoughts. And they the whole point is to like the pack has to stay together in order to stay a cohesive person. And they do think of themselves as individual people, um, as a pack. Yeah. So each member, yeah, like like each member is not an individual. It is part it, it, it doesn't think for itself. It's the like an a person in this world is somebody with basically like four or more bodies. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll also just add to that. They communicate sort of by sounds. So they have these highly developed, they're called tympanous or the eardrum structures that, um, and, and they're sort of, so they're kind of sort of constantly sending out their thoughts, like, like broadcasting basically their, their thoughts. And so anyone, any of these aliens close by are, are picking up their thoughts and sharing their thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, so David, yeah, have, have some more thoughts about the times. I sure do. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we could probably talk the whole the whole uh, the whole podcast about the times. But I I thought the the, the thing that fascinated fascinated me most of all about them was, well, apart from what was just discussed, the fact that it's one mind with with four to eight bodies, uh, but the, the the aspect of almost of eugenics, the fact that they. Breed just like we breed dogs. Uh, I guess they breed themselves to create certain personality types. I found that absolutely fascinating. If, if, if for example, if it's a, if it's a pack of of eight of eight eight of these uh, in the, uh, eight of these beings, and two or three of them die, and you replace them with two or three others, you can kind of affect the personality by adding a certain personality type to the two additions. And in that way, you can sort of skew the person's personality in that way. And characters in the book, the good characters and the villainous characters, uh, they breed, they breed packs to see if they can create, you know, more intelligent ones, more creative ones. Um, so, and that's an important, it plays an important part of the plot, certainly. Um, but I found that fascinating. Uh, I, I, by the way, I also like the, the, Toby mentioned this that when they, um, when you have several packs get together, they kind of lose their individuality and they become more, um, you know, they, if you see multiple packs together, it's usually for orgies or for bots, <laughs> uh, and they kind of lose their individual thoughts. I thought that was, that was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, I was just really amazed at how well developed the times are, like how many of the implications of this idea are explored in this one book. I mean, it's the mm. kind of stuff that you would have, that I would sort of expect an author to come up with over many many years and many many books of developing the idea but it was like it was like he had thought all this stuff out so thoroughly um just just when he wrote this this book um i guess i did notice that he wrote another he wrote a short story called the blabber a couple years before this book was published which is set in the same universe um and it doesn't have the times i haven't read has anyone read the blabber by any chance I actually have not. Okay, just just from what I read, I don't think that the Tynes are in it, but there's a there's a different group mind, kind of alien, and it also has the zones of thought and everything. So he had, I, I, and that came out was published in '88. So at least you know four or five years, maybe he was thinking about some of these ideas before he wrote Fire Upon the Deep. But I mean, they seem like it seems like he's been thinking about it for decades. I mean, it's so highly developed. And even like um, the the thing where there in the book there's a part where there's like a battle and a lot of the tines are are badly injured and so you have just these injured members these these you know this lone wolf kind of you know aliens who are injured and they're basically just all going to die 
And one of the human characters says, like, oh, do they have to die? Couldn't they join new packs? And one of the Tynes says, well, no. If you're in a pack, would you want one of them? Would you want one of them joining you? They're they're better off dying. And um, and just stuff like that was just so, yeah, just so plausible and so so carefully thought out. Yeah, um, I like the, I like the fact that the main the main uh, one of the main villains in the book is an, is a, is a dictator who was assassinated. Or at least almost assassinated. M- multiple parts of him were assassinated, and a couple of his <laughs> individual parts kind of wandered off on their own and wound up joining another pack. And then those, you know, and they have such a powerful personality, they're able to um, to highly influence the new pack that they've joined. And in fact, his name is Flenzer, hmm. and they call the the new pack Flenzer in waiting because eventually, you know, that villain is going to uh, reemerge. That personality is going to reemerge, and I, and by the way, I love that. I love that inner turmoil of that character. Uh, I think the it's called uh, the name of the character is Tri Effect. Tier Effect, yeah. Tier Effect, and um, she's trying to um, uh, keep him in check, keep keep the villain in check for a, a good part of the novel. So I, I love that turmoil. Yeah, I also found it was interesting that like it wasn't just that uh, he was assassinated and wandered off. It's just that they had a backup plan for what to do in case of an assassination attempt. And it was distributing parts of Flenser to some other packs. And then all those packs were making these pilgrimages to go back to his place of power to reconstitute the pack um, as much as they could. And it was just sort of like and so that new that new uh, person made out of one of those packs becomes one of the heroes we almost follow because they end up kind of affecting the final makeup of the villain, right? Like it's, it's it, like you said, the implications of this were so thought out. So, so Toby, did you like notice stuff about the tie-ins on reading 20 or reading 40 that you <laughs> like didn't notice the first time through or like, did they become more, you know, where they're like, I don't know, like wrinkles that, that, you're like, oh, I, I now I understand that. Or there's a lot of like uh, from having it read multiple times. There's just thoughts and reactions that um, Tire Effect has that don't you don't land. But like after having read it multiple, multiple, multiple times, you're like, of course that's why they would have this reaction here. Because like one of the members of the pack has this reaction, and you're like, why would that one have this reaction? There's just like this turmoil and, and tenseness to that constituted group. Um, that is really like shown in uh, what you think as personality um, in the first part of the novel. And then like, you know, when you get the reveal, you're just kind of like, Oh, cool. But like when you reread it, you can reread that stuff knowing then that this is like, you understand who all the different members are and, and that that's like, so super cool. Yeah. I definitely want to reread this. Cause I just sort of glanced at the the first couple of pages again, or the first chapter. And I was like, Oh wow, this is making a lot more sense. Now. Uh, um but let's talk so the other uh main alien race that we see in the book are called the scrode riders so abby you want to tell us about the scrode riders <laughs> i mean what's not to like about a a fluff well a kind of fern potted fern riding on kind of like a little atv <laughs> <laughs> um yeah yeah i mean i just thought they were pretty cool yeah like like they they don't really think the way humans do they can't hold linear thoughts as well and they were kind of uplifted um by these scrodes these things that they ride that help them with mobility and also with their memory issues (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. So he finds out that there are, there are these aliens and they're they're basically they would just sit in the ocean and let the waves wash over them. And in their natural state, they didn't do much more than that. And yeah, at some point in the very distant past, some more advanced alien race came along and and you know, put them on these little like go kart kind of things that yeah that that helps helps store their memories and help them get around. Mm. And uh, yeah, super cool aliens. Um, David, you want to say anything else about the Scrode Riders? I kind of imagine them as like potted plants on skateboards. <laughs> <laughs> And they, um, I like the fact that sometimes they disconnect from their scrodes and they can kind of take a break and exist in the moment. I think the way they naturally do, because um, normally they would have trouble retaining short-term memories. And they, and I like that aspect of that, that aspect of the way that they think. Um, and um, uh, yeah, I thought they were they were cute and interesting. And uh, I like that he gives the, the two the two scrode writers kind of distinct personalities. There, it's like a couple. That are traveling on the ship uh, with our main, with our other main characters, and uh, and since um, I guess we're revealing spoilers. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the big one of the big reveals is that uh, that because they're an up they are an uplifted race, and that they've been uplifted by the the villainous virus that's been that's the main villain in the whole novel that's that's tracking down our main characters, and as a result of that, they are not uh, trustworthy because they've been. They're they're kind of like sleeper agents, potential sleeper agents for this vast alien virus. Um, so I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I thought it was like, especially like going back and looking at some of my notes through the book and everything. It's, everything in the book is so carefully set up, and so one of the things is that, like, like early on, there's the suggestion that one of the I forget why you think this, but but it suggested that I, I think there's something about you know watch out for traitors or something like that. And I actually wrote a note saying, like, is Fam going to turn out to be a, a traitor? So, like, that idea is is set up. And then um, there are these sort of – they're presented as the bad guys. that, but, the, but they get the idea that maybe there's an alien race that's a tool of the blight of this evil virus. And th- th- that it must be the humans. And so these these aliens are going around committing genocide on humans, essentially, to to fight the blight. And, and we think that this is totally crazy. But then it turns out that they were kind of right. They just had the wrong alien race in mind. But like, you know, nothing ever comes out of nowhere. Like everything is is really well set up so that when it happens later on, you're just like, oh, yeah, OK, that makes sense. Right. Um, right. Yeah. There's this 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 paranoia that blows up when when the blight, which is the virus, when the blight is released and it and it begins to like take over all of these uh, areas like it's just taking over and taking over and uh like some races are freaking out and they're like you know who's you know who's it suborned who's it taken over and they're like humans are the latest people who've popped up out of the you know out of the uh slow zone and into the beyond and so that everyone's suspicious and they're like getting ready to wipe out humanity um because they're like these you know the blight has you know control over an entire race of some kind and then it turns out to be the scrode riders the very sweet scrode riders who by the way i love that the scrode riders are like they're they're not just a couple that happens to be on the ship they're kind of like the the you know they 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 own the ship right and uh they're the ones who are piling it around and trading and and running around and and meandering all over the universe so it makes total sense why these scrode riders would have picked up that as a um 
as a uh, as a way of making a living, right? Like they're they're compelled because of their scrodes to try and be everywhere, right? Um, and they end up being the, the the moles, so to speak. Yeah, let me just explain the plot because uh, uh, I, I feel like we haven't quite set everything up. But so <laughs> so there's basically there's two stories going on. There's the story of uh, Jeffrey and Joanna uh, who are maroons on the Tynes planet and have been captured by opposing factions of of these Tyne uh, pack aliens and, in this medieval kind of society. So that's one story. And then in the other story, there's um, Ravna and Fam and the and the Scrode Riders, Blue Shell and Greenstock, and kind of their civilization is under attack. And they're, uh, they, they have reason to believe that there's a, a weapon they can use to fight the Blight on this Tynes planet. So they're trying to get there, and they're being pursued by agents of the Blight. So that's kind of, and we, and we alternate back and forth between those two storylines. Um, so all that's going on. And then, um, Toby, you, you mentioned that there's all this paranoia and like, you know, people cr- saying crazy stuff and everything. And so obviously, uh, you can't have a better model for that sort of atmosphere than Usenet. <laughs> and so, uh, so, so Werner Vinci, you know, this novel was written in, or published in 92. And so Usenet was kind of the main, um, yeah, I don't know, instantiation of internet culture at the time where there were just all these message boards and people would post messages and have these giant flame wars and stuff like that. And so so Vinci has very obviously modeled. Uh, oh, and so because of like um, uh, limitations of sending information across vast reaches of space, they have to send these, send it in kind of the, these text, these short text messages. You know, they, they can't send like, you know, they can't, a zoom, you know, around the galaxy, you know, but they can't do video conferencing uh, around the galaxy. Um, so, so Toby, do you want to comment on the the Usenet uh, character of so much of these uh, conversations between uh, aliens? So, after I read it so obsessively in high school and a chunk of college, you know, I, uh, my I'm old enough that that was right around when you know the internet started to take off, um, and I started to realize what he was talking about, which was Usenet. And so after many years went by of not reading it, I was nervous about going back to reread it because I was like, well, basically, I don't know how well that Usenet metaphor will hold up. Um, and of course, it's always scary to go back to a book you loved like 20 years ago and and be like, okay, what's, you know, what holds up and what doesn't? Um, I found it really compelling. Uh, the Because like, I remember when I was in high school, pouring over the the headers of all of those emails yeah. to try and figure out like where they came from because it, it, it you know the book has the 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 relays that it takes to get from place to place um because they like suggest so much more you know that's out there than just what we got to see um but like the uh, they call it the web of lies right um all web these messages the web of a million lies and if that is just not like even though it was written in ninety two, if that is just not a summary of the internet as we have come to know and hate it um, today, <laughs> I don't know what is. It's an example of like it's a, you know prescient sci fi. <laughs> I mean, this is this is. I mean, I read it in ninety three, ninety four. The internet wasn't wasn't a thing. I mean, I, I wasn't even familiar with using that. All of this was very strange to me that people are sending these you know intergalactic or intergalactic uh, memos to each other. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it turned out to be it's you know galactic Twitter, and you can't trust the word that anybody says because they're all spinning the truth for their own their own purposes. 
Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is so galactic Twitter. And yeah, and like genocide happening because of a bad tweet, you <laughs> yes. know, like what would you read about Facebook, you know, and, and, and how it aided uh, genocide, uh, you know, Rohingya um, and all of these other things. And you, and I'm, I'm like, how in the crap, like I read all these cyberpunk books that I thought were preparing me, you know, for the internet, but it turns out that the book that most prepared me for like the internet as it stands today is a fire upon the deep and it's web of a million lies. And it's, um, whole, uh, you know, uh, groups of people trying to commit genocide because of something they read on the web of a million lies. And I'm just like, oh my God, this book really, 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 really prepared me for all this. <laughs> uh, Abby, were you going to say something? Oh, I just, I liked how it kind of dovetails with the Tynes sort of telepathic communication, um, you know, where they're very limited. And, and because of the limitations they have, where it's it's proximity based and all that, it can't really become the web of lies there. But there's a hint that it could become that if they can start spreading um, their, like across distances and having the big pack mentality type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, another development that happens in the book is that, you know, it's like what happens when these uh, pack aliens who have to always stick together in their packs get access to radio. And then, you know, it's just once again, like, it's just like so many different um, developments of, you know, taking these ideas so far, like, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? Um, I'll mention too, Werner Vinci, I, I believe is a, or was a professor of mathematics and computer science at uh, San Diego State, I think. Um, yeah. So, you know, he was definitely on the cutting edge of computer technology at the time. You know, it's not just, it's no, it's no accident that he, uh, you know, was, was sort of understand, had such a sophist, uh, sophisticated understanding of, of, you know, computer, emerging computer culture. The other thing that uh, blew my mind about this book, and I still think about this like all the time, is he had this idea in it of like code on top of code on top of code, like archaeological depths of computer code, which in the 90s uh, didn't feel like that was a thing yet, right? But now when I think about like, you know, GUI strapped on top of a command line, you know, like you know, just how, you know, like, you know, I, what was I reading the other day that someone, a whole area of the internet and um, a computer, a computer program that people use went down because it depended on a piece of open source software that was maintained by one person since like 1970 something and he stopped. And like, <laughs> There was so much archaeological mm. cruft laid over all this other code that no one knew that there was this one key piece that some open source dude was just maintaining all along. And when that stopped, like the whole thing fell apart for a moment, you know, and it's like, holy crap. Like, I mean, he was talking about that in this book where they're like, you know, the, the way in which like pieces of code are hidden and um, like there's this whole moment where like when the blight, uh, when the humans think, realize that the blight is among them and they're on this asteroid and they take off. Right. And there's like these ships fleeing the blight. And and it's like it's trying to figure out how to get into their ships to suborn them, to take them over. And like the way it does it is with a communications laser that happens to finally find a sensor, like a heat sensor on the side of one of the ships. And it's like, good, I'm in, you know, and it's just like, what? <laughs> that was that was awesome, and I love that that's done from the point of view of that of that malicious. It's the only it's the only place in this gigantic novel where we we we're in the PO, the well, it's the third person close POV of the uh, of that malicious AI virus and how it looks at the humans as my you know as microbe pernicious microbes is, is the word. <laughs> so I thought it was really cool. 
Let me mention the the annotated version. So I, I just finished the book this morning, so I didn't have a ton of time to do research. But just as I was poking around this morning, I came across on, on Wikipedia, it mentions that there was... Okay, so, so this book uh, won the Hugo Award in 93. And so there was some CD... Since CD-ROMs were like hot new technology at the time, they put out a CD-ROM with all of the um, nominees and everything on it. And so as a sort of... Special bonus, Werner Vinci. I guess he, um, I don't know if all his books, at least this one, he he would comment it like he would comment, you know, because he's a computer scientist and everything. He he would like he would comment your code. He would, as he was writing it, he would put in little notes to himself, you know, like check this fact or like, you know, maybe this could plot could go in this direction or something. And so apparently, I wasn't able to actually get the version with the annotations, but apparently. I'm sure there is a way to get it, and you can read all his little notes to it, and there's there's like hundreds of them throughout the book, I think. Um, I guess, did I, anyone else, did you read the read any of that stuff I sent about the the annotated edition? I did. Uh, I've been trying to get my hands on the annotated edition for a while. Uh, I'd love to get it. I would, lo- I would, I would really uh, get a kick out of that. Um, so I, I might, I, I have a dis. I have a distant memory of someone giving me the CD-ROM and I don't know where I would have that. I know I didn't get around to looking at it and I don't know even know where I would have it. So I'm kind of in a, in a state of, I just listened to the book again um, earlier this year, I think it was, or I don't know what is, what even is time in these pandemic <laughs> times. Uh, but at some point during the pandemic, I was having a really rough week and I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just re-listen. I have an Audible account, so I was just. I'm. I wonder what the audio version of A Fire Upon the Deep is like. Um, I'm just going to listen to it again while I kind of get a bunch of work done around the house. And like I said, I was really nervous and uh, about going back to it after an extended period of time away from it. But I just fell right back into it. That that moment where uh, you know uh, the two Scrode writers, uh, Blue Shell and, and Greenstock, are like um, on the Tynes world, um, and they're trying to. They're trying to redeem themselves after the great betrayal. Um, and oh my gosh, like that scene, like to this day, that scene where they're in the burning uh, castle um, kills me every time, every time. Yeah, absolutely. Let me just, let me just say about the annotated, one more thing about the annotated. If you read the, um, his, his, I, I was able to read sort of his um, end note thing where he talks a little bit about how he came up with the, some of the ideas for the book and so on. Um, but he says that, you know, when he, um, you know, when he was putting this together, he had what he thought would be kind of a cool idea where uh, he, he, he said every book should be encoded as a text file, which included all the information about how the book was written so that you could read the book, but then you could also sort of like watch it being every key, it would record every keystroke, right? Mm. So you could watch like, you know, the author wrote this sentence and then like erased this word and then wrote this word and then, you know, move this paragraph around and that all that information would be uh, encoded in the text of the, you know, the digital text of the book. Mm. And he says, you know, that's well within the um, storage capacity. And even, you know, in 90, 1993, that was within the storage capacity. And, you know, now we have like so much. Now we have GitHub. And we know that we know what to do with. So I just thought that was a really interesting idea because I did see um, Brandon Sanderson once like, uh, like did a YouTube video of him like writing the first chapter of I think it was the Stormlight um series. 
Mm. And you could watch him, you know, make you know make typos I'm, and erase I'm, them and stuff a, like that. I'm a fan, but that's a bit much. I don't think I, don't think <laughs> I want to make typos and move the paragraphs around. Maybe maybe Toby could could tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I've 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 long had this kind of like frustration with the tools available to us as fiction writers versus the tools available to um, coders, right? Like uh, GitHub is like pretty darn amazing. It's just it's uh, uh, we have um, when you're coding. They have all these tools that like auto-complete things or allow scratch pads. There's a lot of version tracking, versioning, branching, forking, um, stuff that you can do in code. And it solves problems that coders have that are actually the same problems we have as fiction writers. And so I am actually kind of somewhat dissatisfied with the current state of word processing. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I think it would be cool if every book... If you wanted to, you could see what the entire composition process had been. I mean, just for scholars and super fans and stuff. Right, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ulysses has this like um, every five minute snapshotting capability. It's an app uh, I use. Um, and you can just sort of flick through the history of each individual document um, as it changes. And I, um, I, I find that endlessly fascinating. I mean, I've seen like some indie authors doing this like live writing on Twitch for their fans. Oh, cool. Yeah. Which I, I don't know. I, I've, as a fan, I don't think I would want to see that. <laughs> sort of like a stadium full of people watching someone with a giant broadcast screen behind them as they like type. We can cheer them on like competitive writing. <laughs> right, right. Oh, he deleted that word. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right. <laughs> I once did a, um, I, you know, when I was talking about like how we create stories, cause like everyone, you know, I, I don't know about you all, but like whenever I, I, I talk about writing, you almost inevitably get at least one person in a, in a decent sized audience who goes, where do you get your ideas from? Um, and, uh, I taught a, a um, I did a lecture on creativity where I started with just a, a blank board. Um, it was like a whole sort of like perform art thing type. Uh, scenario. And what I did was I had the audience throw out prompts and I worked them through how you, you just start with a blank board and you come up with prompts and ideas and you brainstorm and you discard dumb ones and you elevate the interesting ones. You try to make some connections. You try to supercharge the concept, come up with kind of like a story seed um, and then a, a rough outline. And then I wrote live with like a projector on a big screen behind me, a short story in front of an audience um, as they like uh, bought dinner, got some finger food, you know, wandered around and looked at some paintings in a location. Um, and then over the next hour wrote a very short uh, kind of complete short story as a piece of performance art. And then like read it out loud when I was done. And so that they could see like the entire process from beginning to end. Um, and that was really interesting. Um, but like the problem is for writing, it's, it's, it's long, right? It's like, you know, it's an hour of coming up with the idea and talking to them about how creativity works. And then it was another hour of writing the story in front of them. And then like half an hour of revision. And then like I performed the story. So it's like this three hour commitment. And that's just a lot to ask of people. Yeah. Wow. All right. Maybe we can do a panel on writing, on writing live. Cause there's probably more to say about that. I mean, like Harlan Ellison, I guess, used to like take a prompt from the audience and sit in the window of the bookstore and write the story and then read it <laughs> i mean but uh let's let's we have enough to say about fire upon the deep so i want to um, <laughs> focus on that um but um does anyone else have anything else before i suggest any other topics does anyone else like abby or david have any anything you just really want to talk about in regards to fire upon the deep 
Um, I mean, I'll just say, like, with both this and Deepness in the Sky, the only two books I've read by him so far, um, those are some amazingly epic plotting that he has going on. Um, like other people have said, it's you could fit a series. Um, I just love how fast moving it is and how big the scope is. He has a huge universe, a huge galaxy imagined there. So, Actually, another yeah. in in those end notes, another thing he says is that he wrote the tie. He I think he wrote the whole Tyne's story pretty much, and he's like that went really smoothly, and so I had that done. And then the uh, the Ravna story was originally completely different. He says like originally she was a secret agent, like spying on Stroudly Realm, or I, I forget the details. Mm-hmm. But he he says he wrote like half of that storyline, uh, and it was just like this sucks, and threw the whole thing out and started over from scratch. Wow. Um, yeah, that would have worked too. I mean, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Wow. In the introduction to the to the edition that I read, he mentions that he wrote the novel while he was in Nor- a good part of it when he was in Norway. And so I find that interesting that the character, the characters that make it up into the beyond, they're all Norwegians or they have Norwegian mm-hmm. names. <laughs> so um, I don't know how prescient that was that the Norwegians will conquer the universe, but, um, <laughs> but I think that was <laughs> well. I mean, he also says um, in the introduction, he mentions that he was visiting like the Aniara Foundation or something like that. So, so yeah, I definitely think that was a big, you know, which which the, that that sort of idea comes back in the book. But yeah, I think that was a big influence uh, in in different ways. If I remember right, yeah, he posits that they were like Norwegian asteroid miners that made it out uh, of the slow zone into the beyond from old Earth. Um, I'll also just say a couple other things. Or David, do you have anything other just general topics you want to discuss with Fire Upon the Deep? Um, I'm trying to think now. Not, not, not specifically. Why don't you go ahead? Yeah. Okay. I'll just mention a couple other things I turned up in my research. Um, I, guess, I think this was just on Wikipedia, but it says that the original title was Among the Times. And it says its final title was suggested by his editors. So definitely mm-hmm. glad. Definitely props to his editors there <laughs> yeah, on that one. Yeah. <laughs> What do you what do you what do you what do you all think the title means? I mean, there's a, there was a scene later in the book where there's a space battle and the ship kind of goes off and, and oh, I but the, I, have, I have a thought. What's that? A fire upon the deep is because they're in the they're in the deep, right? They're no longer in uh, the uh, they're no longer in the beyond, right? So um, so well, here's another huge plot twist, right? Which is that like the zones of thought normally don't ever move, right? It's kind of like mapped. It'd be like, you know, like, you know, the continent of America moving, right? Like there may be some like change through nat- some kind of natural process little bit by little bit, but there's no like major movement. And the thing that uh, happens, the countermeasure is the ability of a piece of code to basically reshape the zones of thought. So when all of these um, things are, coming down to try and attack uh the countermeasure the blight is sending all of these like ships just thousands of ships to attack right like the um the countermeasure is the ability to kind of like drop the ability to think right and so it basically just creates um you know a a a pocket of of stupidity around the blight while also descending thousands of civilizations into like unthinkingness Right. It's just like so mind blowing that the the zones can move. Like the moment we get to the point where the, the zones start moving, it's just like madness. It's like so huge. Um, and so I think a fire upon the deep is like the fire, the countermeasure is like in the deep, right? There's something burning in the deep. Mm. That's my thought. Mm, awesome. 
I mean, my interpretation was just was that the fire is the blight, you know, that the the deep is, you know, because there's this metaphor early on in the book where it says that the slow or the yeah, the slow zone is like the the depths of the ocean where, mm. you know, things from the surf, you know, things from higher up in the ocean could get down there if they really, really wanted to. But in, in general, they don't bother. Mm. So it seems pretty clear to me that the deep is the the slow zone or, okay. you know, or, yeah. or at least the lower Agreed. beyond. There's this beautiful um, metaphor, beautiful metaphor at the end of the novel when um, one of the scroll writers is kind of laid out to, to kind of pasture in this uh, alien ocean, and they, they they pick an area of the ocean that's the most ferocious with the the, the strongest waves, and it kind of the, the where the, where the ocean surges the most. And there's an observation by the other characters that that's where that's where life tends to thrive in, in that in the conflict in the in the mm. in that zone between the ocean and the shore where the waves are the most ferocious. And I thought, wow, that's that's really beautifully written and a nice metaphor for what we've just read about these zones. Yeah, but but so I I, I just so I just think the fire is the, the blight is that there's okay. the, the the deep and there's this cause cause it just conveys the sense like there's this big emergency, you know, yeah. like um, you know, like shit is all happening. You know, I, I think that's that's my interpretation of the title, but I, I think a lot of times, you know, for a title or something, it's just more important that it sounds cool than that it necessarily means anything. I think, I mean, I think this title, I think that that interpretation or Toby's interpretation, like, totally work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's just more important. I think that the main thought was just like, doesn't that sound cool? You know? Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes you have a title that sounds cool and you put it on a book. Sometimes you have a a, a robot manta ray that has nothing to do with the story <laughs> and it doesn't work as much i mean you know like it's just you know the... but but in defense of the manta ray i mean that's why i picked it like i just i saw like a, a you know a ship that looked like a manta ray that was all you know metallic and i just thought like well i, I there probably be something kind of cool in here like let's give it a whirl and see what happens i guess yeah i mean i i heard you know david hartwell was telling me one time about i, I don't know if he picked it or but you know the the cover for ender's game I think it was specifically the 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 um the cover for Speaker for the Dead is kind of this like techno city with like flying cars and stuff, and the the book is set on a um like a planet with like farms and stuff. <laughs> the, the cover has nothing to do with the book at all, but it like that cover accurately conveys what what genre and and mood the book is. Whereas if you mm-hmm. just had a picture of a farm, it wouldn't right. So yeah. um so it's maybe the same thing where yeah, there's no giant manta ray robot ship in a, in the book but it tells you that it, this is like crazy space opera shit yeah but if you like giant manta ray starships <laughs> this might be your book <laughs> um abby anything anything else you wanted to say there uh no i would just agree um i guess i can i know i keep saying deepness in the sky but that that one i think i feel like he melded um the theme to the title of the book a little bit more this one you're right it's a little bit more guesswork mm-hmm so you said you think Deepness in the Sky is even better than that? Yeah, I liked it better, yeah. Well, I mean, come on. What, what, look at the opening line for Deepness in the Sky. The manhunt extended across more than 100 light years in eight centuries. Like, that's just... Woo. <laughs> Wait, so Toby, how many times have you read Deepness in the Sky? Just a few times. I, I, uh, that came out when I was um, uh, did not have as much spare free time. <laughs> Do you agree that it's better or like, how do you, how would you compare them? I think it's really good, but I mean, a fire upon the deep holds a very special place in my heart. I think a deepness in the sky might on a literary level um, be uh, more 
Like uh, there, I think it might be crafted better, but I think like in terms of like ideas per page, like it's hard to beat, you know, a fire upon the deep in just terms of like just like yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. Yeah, that's a good assessment. You know, I, I will I will add something, David. I mean, but you were asking about other, other thoughts about the book. I thought what was interesting was that uh, there's an interesting melding of fantasy and science fiction tropes in both storylines. They're both interweaving storylines. And in the Times world, we're dealing with these really interesting aliens. But it's set in this bizarre, and I think it's bizarre that it's it's kind of a medieval-type setting with queens and castles and typical fan. it's a typical fantasy setting with, science fiction aliens in them and then in the other storyline you have uh these um this gang this ragtag gang of of uh, space swashbuckling you know space people on their ship and among them is this this fantasy type character um so i thought that was you know i thought that was all interesting and also um i will say we've been talking about how fantastic the book is and i agree i did have one reservation and that was that i thought that um uh, probably my only reservation is that the, that medieval setting in the Times world is so so human. I mean, the, the alien characters are um, they're in libraries, they're uh, drinking brandy, they're smoking, <laughs> they're <laughs> around. And I'm thinking, I couldn't help but think of you know those pictures of dogs that playing poker. <laughs> <laughs> and that, yeah, that was, yeah, that's yeah. That was my yeah. only my only reservation that the world is just. So, so, so human. I mean, I, I guess he did it maybe to ground us because the aliens are so cool and so alien. But uh, but that was probably my only my only knit. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I honestly like when it, like I had a really hard time getting it through my head that like when he's when it's like steel did this, like picturing like five dogs doing that rather than <laughs> a person doing that. So like, yeah, I could definitely see just like, OK, let's not go crazy <laughs> with the architecture and, and stuff. Let's keep everything else kind of understandable because it's just sort of such a mental, you have to kind of like rewire, rewire your brain. to like, imagine five dogs doing everything these characters are doing. <laughs> I'd say that's definitely one of the harder parts for me uh, as well. Yeah. I'll say like, I'm a visual person. I, I come from an art background and I can imagine this stuff pretty easily. So I, I found it so much fun to imagine five dogs doing everything. <laughs> I love how uh, Johanna, you know, it's just like she describes them as like a pack of puppies when she meets the uh, yeah. the one, you know, the one uh, eight person uh, group. Um, I think one of the appeals of this book is that, like, if there's a science fiction trope that you're fond of, this probably has it right. Like we mentioned space traders, kings and queens, medieval, right, that uh, being plucked out of a medieval th- uh, setting into a high science fiction setting. Um, there's the discuss, there's the sort of like the times as they develop, um, they go through kind of like the, uh, the enlightenment with the technology. Um, there's the starships, the space opera, right? There's a, and then there's like the, the godlike aliens and godlike tech. Like, I mean, there's just so many different kinds of tropes that are all stacked on top of each other that are very carefully, uh, made as real as could be that it's like if there's something if there's some kind of science fiction you love there's a thread of it that you can follow through this whole book and that that also uh i think is like what speaks to one of its its powers yeah well when david was saying it reminds him of a fantasy novel the 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 medieval storyline on the times world and everything it was reminding me that as i was reading this it was reminding me a lot of game of thrones because it's this sort of you know 
backstabbing mm-hmm. and betrayal and court intrigue in a medieval society. And there's even there's like mountains in this called um, the Ice Fangs, and there's mountains in Game of Thrones called the Frost Fangs and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And it was making me wonder if George R. R. Martin read this and the the idea of telepathic dogs, you know, originated <laughs> in any way uh, here. Maybe. Oh. My, I, I love I love all the, the the betrayals and the politics and all of that. But my advice to the characters is don't trust the, the guy called Steel and don't trust the one called Vendacious. There's just something about, <laughs> something about that, the name I can't quite put a finger on. Uh, I don't know what it that, is. That was actually I, I only have like four criticisms written down, and the name Vendacious being too on the nose is one of them. It was making me think of like in um. Lord of the Rings, like who would have ever thought that the scheming advisor would turn out to be, you know, or the Grim, the guy named Grimo Wormtongue would turn out to be the scheming, you know. So, but I, I don't know, Toby. What do you, what do you make of Vin, that name, Vin? Because I mean, they're all named sort of intimidating things, so it might mm-hmm. just be part of their society that the Master of Spies is named something like that. Yeah, there's a bit of that. Like they do take on those names that are kind of like almost aspirational, right? Because the flenserists call themselves flenserists because of, you know, like there's the, the flensing, the act of flensing, right? Which is cutting off the useless. They're, they're, you know, they're, uh, cutting out the useless members, right? The, you know, that don't carry the pack's weight. They're, you know, like you said, they're in, in that, um, mode of, of, uh, oh, shoot. Um, Oh, geez. I'm kind of blowing the word. What is it? Um, they're, uh, they, they believe in like, um, breeding, you know, for certain qualities. Like eugenics? Yes. Yeah. yeah. They believe in eugenics. The, the bad tines believe in eugenics and even the good tines kind of experiment with it. Right. And it's like, oof. Right. Um, they are kind of like, uh, they, they're, they've got some, as a result of the packs, they've got some, They've got some uh, loaded uh, belief systems. Yeah, I mean, so in universe, it kind of makes sense. But I, yeah, I, I just think in a story where they, the the traitor, this this character is going to turn out to be a traitor. Maybe yeah, name him something that doesn't sound like mendacious with one letter. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a that's a fair that's a fair criticism. That's a fair criticism. Yeah. Can I, can I, I'd like to just talk briefly about, I mean, again, I was focused on the, the craft of describing the aliens and how he, he pulls it off. And I thought that what was really interesting was the way that he, what a trick that he uses that I think is awesome is he, he has the aliens describe the humans. And in the way they describe the humans, you, you get a sense of the aliens. Mm. And uh, there was a, a little couple sentences here where he says, this is one of the, this is one of the times looking at the humans. And they and they say uh, there were four legs per member, but it walked on its rear legs only. What a clown! Yet it used its front paws for holding things. Not once did he see it use a mouth. He doubted if the flat jaws could get a good hold anyway. Those four paws were wonderfully agile. A single member could easily use tools. That's one quote, which I thought was, was just great. It gives you a sense of by describing the humans, you get a sense of the aliens. And then later on, Lord Steel. Is describing the aliens, and he says, um, uh, "The more uh, yet, the more Steel saw, the more he realized the intrinsic inferiority of the aliens. What a bizarre abortion they were—a race of intelligent singletons. Every one of them must be raised from nothing, like a wholly newborn pack. Memories could only be produced by voice and writing. Each creature grew and aged, and even died as a whole. 
despite himself, still shivered. And I thought, wow, what a, you know, kudos to, to Werner Vinci. I think, I think that's just great, great craft. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's super cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually, there was, uh, there are some examples too, where um, the humans think things that give you a sense of, I mean, we don't really see a lot of their society like um, Jeffrey and Joanna's or, or Ravna's, but occasionally they just say things that reveal what their societies are like, like, Joanna, when they're stranded on the alien planet, she says, um, or she thinks like she's sick and she's never been sick before. And she's like, no, but being sick is normal in a medieval society. So maybe I shouldn't be that concerned about this. <laughs> um, yeah. and, um, there's a part where she thinks so one of the characters thinks about how, like, oh, you can walk around in the woods here where I come from. You had to have a permit to walk uh, off <laughs> the paths, you know, in the park or something. Yeah. Um, but the example I really wanted to mention of that is that. Um, um, uh, the, the, the scrode riders are at one point they're at this place called harmonious repose and they're kind of, um, uh, negotiating with aliens to fix their ship and stuff. And the scrode riders are haggling with the aliens and Ravda has never seen haggling before because she's only ever been in societies where everyone always has perfect information about what everything is worth. And so there's never any disagreement about in any, there's, there's just never any negotiating. It's like, we both know this is worth exactly this. And so you know, this is what the price is going to be. Mm. And I thought that was a really interesting. Um, yeah. Interesting. yeah. By, by, the, by the way, David, when they stopped at Harmonious Repose, almost as a throwaway line, there's a long description of these gigantic uh, the system with gigantic rings around it. And I thought, look, he just he just kind of uh, used he kind of used Ringworld as an afterthought. It's, the story is so cosmic that Ringworld <laughs> is just a paragraph in the novel. You know? Right. <laughs> Well, that was really cool because it, it, it said, you know, that ring, uh, I, I, how did it go? It was, it was like ring systems like this are created by, you know, like planets being blown up and, and, and something else. And, and it's like, you know, it's like the whole, like the way I, I think it's described, the way I imagined it was like the whole solar system is like one giant, like ring of debris, basically. And then there's the, these like giant alien structures built up out of it and stuff. It was re- like, there's, and yeah, and that's just like, yeah, you, you know, you, you would think that, you know, like, that could be the setting for a whole novel. And then that's just like a road a page, stop, a page of description, you know? Yeah. 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 And then like the, uh, the, the tusked aliens with all the scrimshaw instead of tattoos. Yeah. yeah. That's very cool. And, and how about the, uh, the butterfly species? They're, they're so beautiful and dainty, but they're vicious and <laughs> mercenaries. You need to stay away from them. There was even just a cool detail. It, it, there's a, a description of there. They enter this room where it's this spherical room, and then there's trees growing toward the center from all directions. Uh, and that's just a throwaway detail, too. Um, yeah, yeah, and and then like um, even with the butterfly uh, aliens, that the uh, Aprahanti, Aprahanti, um, yeah. they are like a, a civilization on the way down, right? So like their whole thing is to like use the chaos of the moment to kind of reestablish their like empire almost. Um, so it's just sort of like, uh, and it's just, and it's just a small little passing thing, but like you get the sense of like, you know, a whole civilizational history and, uh, kind of tied up there in just that one little piece. Yeah. I'll just mention one other, like, okay, and uh, seriously, like spoilers again, but so at the end of the book, how they defeat the blight is that they deploy this countermeasure and what it does, like talking about giant scale space opera shit, it sends out like this like wave of slowness 
of the slow zone out into the beyond, out into the very um, low parts of the transcend, just making super intelligence and faster than I travel and all this stuff impossible for like a hundred million civilizations or something, um, you know, all, all at once, uh, resulting in presumably hundreds of millions of deaths uh, along the way in order to wipe out the blight. And Ravna has this thought of um, this sort of passing. It's just a th- again, it's just this throwaway line, but like, oh, maybe the countermeasure was actually worse than the blight. <laughs> and I thought that was really cool. I mean, like a really cool thought. It's like, oh, they they went on, they did this whole quest to stop this thing that seemed so like the worst thing you could possibly imagine. This evil super uh, super intelligent virus that's wiping out millions of civilizations or whatever. But maybe the cure was actually worse than the, than the disease. That's just one another like I just had my mind blown so many times reading this book. This book again that was published in 1992. I mean, mm-hmm. and that was that was one of them. It's like wow. Yeah, maybe t- the totally agree, totally agree that when they, they, they you know they said we won, we won, you know we defeated the blight and oh you know we killed a hundred million <laughs> civilizations as well um, along the way. Uh, the, the thought definitely jumped out at me as well. That, wow. that last, that last Usenet post in the book, like still puts chills down my spine to this day where it's like a plaintive, you know, so like the, 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 um, the slow zone that, that this countermeasure creates and, and, uh, you know, kind of blasts outwards and upwards up through everything. So there's a, you know, um, there's a message sent from someone who's been following the, the war events. Um, but it has to route it all the way around the other side of the galaxy <laughs> to reach someone on the other side of this new slow kind of like, you know, triangle that's been carved out of the galaxy. And it's just this plaintive, like, hello, is anyone out there? I'm sending this through every single relay all the way around the other side of the galaxy to see if there's anyone on the other side of this. Like, can you reply back? <laughs> What would happen if our internet just went down throughout the whole world? I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's <laughs> like that. Like, well, I, it's something like, you know, uh, not just that, but then like I'm looking at, I've been following the, the you know, the war in Ukraine and the, the open source intelligence community, the way they're trying to parse together what's happening and what cities have fallen and what movements are happening in Russia. I had this really weird moment of feeling like one of those commenters uh, who are talking back and forth about what's happening uh, during the blight um, with uh, inside the novel and reading some OS, uh, IN, uh, OS intelligent uh, open source intelligence reports. Um, some of those um, uh, texts uh, on Twitter or uh, wherever that I'm reading feel so much like those moments in Fire Upon the Deep where they're just exchanging information about what civilizations and worlds have fallen and 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 what has happened. Like it's that kind of same kind of like everyone looking at this world changing event or a galaxy changing event in real time and trying to just figure out what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. I just want to mention, so in, um, there's a, I sent you guys to write the Slashdot article written by Robotech Master. And, um, he says of, of a fire upon the deep, he says, I have heard rumors that some of these posts, uh, the, the posts in the book, the Usenet style posts in a fire upon the deep were written based on the posting styles of well-known Usenet kooks of the day, but the annotations failed to provide any proof of this. Oh. So. If anybody knows anything about that, I would be very, very interested to, you know, <laughs> if that's true. I, that I was like, I'm just slightly too young for Usenet. 
I mean, you can imagine it's like Twitter with less, you know, with longer, <laughs> longer messages. Basically. It's longer posting Twitter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. All right. Well, uh, I'll also just mention um, that uh, I, th- I thought it was worth noting in, in John Coote's introduction. He says that um, Brainwave by Paul Anderson uh, has this idea of, you know, people getting of, of the of the milk. Uh, no, I think it's of the solar system. Finally moving out of this region of the Milky Way that has, for all of history, suppressed human intelligence. And so everybody just starts getting really, really smart um, because now our um, mental processes are speeding up. And that this is, an, this is from 54. This is an important um, predecessor of the zones mm. of thought. And there's a lot of reference. There's a lot of Paul Anderson references. I mean, I mentioned in the dedication Benji mentions Paul Anderson, and then uh, throughout the book he uses the word sophont, which is means sort of generally human level, a, a being with generally human level intelligence. Um, but that's kind of a made up word, but it, it was made up by Paul Anderson's wife and used in his. You know, Paul Anderson was the first person to use that. So mm-hmm. there's like, you know, Paul Anderson uh, references, you know, throughout this book. Um, and then in the, in the dedication also, Benji mentions the story Junior by Robert Abernathy as exploring an alien somewhat similar to the writers. So, um, I just want to mention if people, if you like this book and want some further reading, uh, those are some things. Actually, also, um, uh, Joan D. Vinci, uh, who was married to Werner Vinci for a long time, uh, has written some stuff in the zones of thought, uh, the Outcasts of Heaven Belt and Legacy, and says she was also working on a novel about Fam Nguyen. I don't think that ever uh, was published uh, to date, but um, yeah. Spe- but speaking, if you're, uh, speaking of Fam, David, I think that you know my, perhaps for me the most moving scene in the whole book was his uh, spoilers his de- his death scene at the very end where he you know his as he's as he's dying his he finally comes to realize that all of his memories are real and mm-hmm. tormented by the fact that he's, he's thought that maybe it's all fiction. And, and he, um, he looks at Ravna and he says, you know, she loved me, even though whether it was real or not, she still was able to love me. And, and it was, and it was, you know, his last words are, um, I'm real. And I just found that so moving. Um, yeah. that was just, just terrific. That, that scene and the one with the scrolled writer's death, I thought were, were my, the two most moving scenes in this gigantic book. I like the the epilogue where they they left Green stalk um the other scored writer and turns out she's kind of pregnant with you know I guess caviar babies or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 yeah, whatever you call those um yeah and they just you know it's like well she's gonna have other scored writers without scrodes um on this Tynes planet and that's yeah, gonna I agree with you Abby I love that scene too that was just terrific. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I don't want to kill your buzz, David, but I did wonder. So, so basically, a, a, as Fam is dying, he gets this message from the superhuman um, intelligence that sort of controlled him, saying basically, like, you were always so awesome that the only way I could manipulate you was to make you doubt who you really were. And and then he dies happy. And it did make me wonder if the intelligence was just telling him what would make him happy. No. In no. his last moment. <laughs> Too cynical. Too cynical. <laughs> Well, and, and so we, 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 we glossed over the fact that Fam Nguyen, uh, like the God inserts, tries to cram itself into him. 
because it needs to 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 pilot FAM down into the slowness to uh, release the countermeasure and release it in the right direction because the countermeasure is just not intelligent enough to figure out where to point itself. Um, and that's basically this whole book is basically about you know trying to get FAM to the countermeasure so that the old one. Um, which is what they call this vast god that, you know, was in the transcend, which was attacked by the blight, but put itself down into fam at the last second so it could go, uh, launch the countermeasure. It's just, um, yeah, like it's there within him, um, you know, talking about this stuff. But I do think if you read the preview, the, the next book, A Deepness in the Sky, we, we learn a lot about fam. Okay, yeah, I definitely want to read that because this is, yeah, this is one of, easily one of the best science fiction novels I've ever read. Um, yeah, yeah, I would okay. agree with that. I mean, it, it's it really to me it ranks way up there with like the top. Yeah, yeah, ditto. It's definitely in my top ten. Well, as yeah. as we all know, it's like in my <laughs> top three. <laughs> I, I would put it in my top five. Yeah. Yeah. So what what's the second most number of times Toby you've ever read a book? Um probably The Hobbit. I used to read it um twice a year every year uh after the first time I read it until um my senior year of college. So how many so times so that's like that I I first read it probably in um 6th grade. So that would be 6th grade uh so six years plus 10 years, twice a year, 20 times. Yeah. I've read that at least, yeah. at least 20 times. I mean, I've read some of the, the Roger Zelazny's Amber books. Definitely. I've read 40 or 50 times, but those are really short and the Hobbit's really short. I mean, this is not a short book. This is a long, this is like a 450 page book. This is a long book to have read <laughs> 40 <laughs> times. That's a big, <laughs> that's, that's dedicated. That's dedication. I, but the thing is like, it's not dedication. It like every time I crack open this book, I fall into it, you know, like for like the, the copy I had on my shelf for the longest time was just completely ratty and just completely creased and, 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 and like, you know, just miserable with like dirt from my, my hands because I would, I would just like open it up at some section of it just to kind of like re check something or re, you know, just re experience a portion of it. And I would just fall right back into it and just find myself at the end again, without meaning to, um, I just, I just fall into the book, the world, uh, you know, I just, every time it just sucks me right in. And so it's not like work. It's just sort of like going back into your favorite world and living there again, even though you know, what's going to happen, even though you know, it's coming again, you just, I just get sucked right back in and it's, it, I don't have to work at it. It's there are books like this for me where I just crack it open. And as, as they start to expand, as they start to tell the story again, I just go like, I just love being in this place. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we're, we're pretty much out of time. So, um, so Abby, any other final thoughts? Yeah. Um, I'll just say like this one, one, one note I had is like, you have like nested, first contact nested ulterior motives and betrayals like there's all these like just these just plot wise it's stunning as well as you know create creatively wise so <laughs> yeah, um, well, yeah well if you see all of um or if you know vinci comments that he couldn't have written this book without this method that he describes of having like all these hundreds of annotations and you know it, it would allow him to keep track of everything and you know, he would have little notes about each plot line and stuff. Or the work you know. shows, yeah, the amount of the amount of time and effort he put into thinking it through. I really admire that. Yeah, 
it's 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 impressive and, and just following up on the deception um it's interesting it's one of the themes that i thought ran through the book was the the idea that we're all at the whims of greater forces and um you know fam fam is inhabited by that god that that um not that god by the higher being it's they call it god shatter and then the, the scrode riders are also um you know programmed by the blight to be traitors and uh, and then the the bulk of the plot is a young child young human child being deceived and manipulated by one of the villains lord steel and the whole book i'm just like oh he's you know he's treated it's so frustrating he's tricking him he's tricking him and so again so again it pulls you through the the, the manipulations and the deception uh yeah pulls you through i love by the way that when the adult humans show up it's like oh yeah he's he's the villain he's like it's obvious <laughs> <laughs> it was it was very satisfying um um so and and the blight of the blight the 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 virus of course it kind of zombifies whole civilizations and takes them over. So that, I thought that was interesting the this manipulation and control of other beings. Um, so I, I like that aspect of it. As a as a as a young writer, this made me want to write space opera and want to to strive to do something like this. And as a forty three year old writer, it completely intimidates me. <laughs> that like this exists and you know like the, how how can you ever measure up like your own writing how can you achieve something like this it's like a uh it's it actually kind of sometimes like really like you know just knocks me back a peg that this book even exists I feel the same way <laughs> i do well i think it's telling he didn't write tons and tons of novels i think he spent a lot of time on this this was years and years. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I remember waiting for the next one. Right. Like, I mean, that was like this 12, like I remember like reading that it was going to happen and like, you know, all these people, like uh, I shouldn't do this, but like all, you know, people complain about how long the, the last, the latest game of Thrones book has taken, but like, I waited like 15 years for this book, <laughs> the deepness in the sky, you know? And I was just like, you know, absolutely. This is going to take him forever to write. Cause like you, like you said, you can see the work done in a fire upon the deep. Like, yeah, it makes sense to me that like one of these books comes out every 15 years because good Lord. Yeah. I mean, I interviewed him in 2012 about children of the sky. And I was just looking, I don't, has he, is he working on, has he been working on something for the last 10 years or, cause it doesn't look like, um, I don't know. I hope he's enjoying retirement. <laughs> 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, he, I, I, I have no idea, but he, he might feel the same way you do. It's like, okay, how do I ever, you know, measure up to, how do I beat what I've already done? It's so good, you know? I, yeah. I mean, he can, he can rest on his laurels, uh, as <laughs> far as I'm concerned. Like, I mean, just any one of those three books is an achievement. Absolutely. Yeah. So once, a, once again, definitely, no question, one of the best science fiction books. I've ever read. Everyone go check it out. Can't wait to read Deepness in the Sky. Um, and so, yeah, so let's uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Tobias S. Bikel, Abby Goldsmith, and Mercurio D. Rivera. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Tobias S. Bikel, Abby Goldsmith, and Mercurio D. Rivera for joining us on the show. 
This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening. 